Uh, you know, I, I got a little bit of nostalgia today as well. I um, realized that, um, you know, when I was told about uh, being an interim pastor, I, I was, they said it might be 12 to 14 months. <laughs> so much for that. I've blown past that a long time ago. But uh, it ends up at the, you know, at the end of December, it'll be t- 26 months, actually, that... Um, so, well, thank you very much. It's, uh, I, I never thought uh, a couple of things, that I would be here this long or that I would enjoy it this much. So anyway, it's been a blessing to us. Suzanne's not with me today. She's under the weather some. And so uh, anyway, we're going to look at a somewhat of a famous passage today one that we're familiar with. Do any of you ever go to churches where they had like Christmas pageants at some point in time? If you've been to that kind of a thing, few of you have. Uh, but, uh, you know, the Magi always kind of figured in with those kind of Christmas pa- pageants. But anyway, sometime after the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, wise men, were told, came from the East to worship him. Now, the Bible itself tells us very little about the wise men. Uh, we're not sure who they were. We're not sure from where they came. Uh, we're not sure how many there were. Uh, the Bible is quiet about these kinds of specifics. Now, thankfully, we have Hallmark cards to, to give us some insights here. From the Christmas cards, we learned that there were three of the wise men. We learn that they were all kings, and uh, we also learn from the Christmas carol that they actually came from the Orient. So we don't really know a lot of specifics about them, but the coming of the Magi has always kind of figured into the Christmas story. Uh, We normally portray them coming actually to the stable at the time where the infant uh, Jesus was born there in Bethlehem. Uh, But in view of the long journey that they had to take and in view of the light of Herod's edict that all children in Bethlehem, our male children in Bethlehem over the age of two years old were to be slaughtered. So it is possible uh, that when the wise men did arrive from wherever they happened to come, that Jesus might not have been an infant as much as perhaps a, a toddler uh, during that time. Now, the wise men were probably uh, men of wealth, perhaps consultants to very important people, and yet uh, they took the time to come from whatever distance they had to come to worship the newborn king. Now, in your outline, I have just two major movements, uh, two major points that I want to um, uh, talk to you about. One is the journey of the Magi, and the other happens to be the gift of the Magi and how we can apply that to our own lives. But the first movement is the journey, and uh, again, let me read a couple of verses for you, verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi came from the east, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. I mean, how great is that? 
We've come to worship him. Now, four observations under this point I want to put before you today. First of all, the goal of the Magi's journey was simply to worship the king. That's why they came. They wanted to do that. Now, to worship is to assign worth and then act accordingly. Uh, When we possess something that's valuable, we assign worth to it, we preserve it, we might even insure it. When we possess God, we have a treasure not of high value, but of infinite value. And we don't invest more, we invest everything. So the Magi came to behold the majesty and the splendor of the newborn king. Now, the Magi, just a little bit of a sidebar here, but uh, the majesty of the incarnate king is always reflected in the created order. I think about it. God imagines just astonishing things like uh, of incredible beauty, like oceans and mountains and galaxies, and then God just simply calls them into existence. And one of the things about our God is he never sacrifices aesthetics for utilitarianism. Uh, he, he never compromises beauty with, with tr- for truth. In fact, beauty and truth can't be separated. Uh, beauty without truth is not beauty. Truth without beauty is not truth. And so the Magi came from wherever to worship the God of beauty and truth. A little second observation is the Magi refer to Jesus as the King of the Jews. And this is not incidental. You know, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? Now, Herod had been called the King of the Jews by the Senate in Rome for 40 years up to this time. Uh, But nobody called Herod the Messiah. The king from whom the Jews longed was the Messiah, and Messiah refers simply to a God-anointed ruler. So it was clear to Herod that the Magi weren't searching for some ordinary king. They were searching for the final king. Now, Herod was troubled by that, as you might well imagine. He asked his own religious leaders, hey, where in the world is this Christ supposed to be born? And they said, well, just a few miles down the road from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, not very far at all. That's where it says, Bethlehem of Judea. Now, really, this is uh, the religious leaders knew something about the Old Testament. It was prophetic word in the book of Micah that the Messiah would come and he would be born actually, you know, in, in uh, Bethlehem of Judea. So uh, this is really the prophetic fulfillment of the Old Testament. You know, it's real interesting, uh, you know, when you consider the Jewish religious leaders, how they knew the scriptures but couldn't be bothered to even travel just a few miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to investigate the arrival. They didn't bother to go at all. Now, they don't compare very well to the Magi who came from a long distance uh, and uh, to do the same thing. Third observation is I want to comment a little bit on the star. You know, how 
did the star get the magi to Jerusalem? It doesn't say the star led them there. It says they saw a star in the east and they came to Jerusalem. Now, how did the star go before them in their walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? How did the star settle over the place where the child was? And we don't have answers to those questions. The star falls into the same category of other questions in Scripture, like how did the Red Sea split? How did manna fall from heaven? How did Jonah survive in the belly of a fish? All of these are significant but more marginal issues compared to the deep truths of the gospel, like the holiness of God, the ugliness of sin, justification by faith, and the glory of Christ's return. So I would say to you, go ahead and chase biblical trivia if you choose to do that. You know, that's exactly what what, uh, happened here. We're chasing biblical trivia. Do it. I do it all the time. But uh, we need to make sure that when we chase this stuff, we don't get caught up in the Hinkley underbrush and think that somehow... This is really, really significant. If God doesn't explicitly say it, then we can only speculate a little bit about it. What is plain is that the star is doing something that it can't do on its own, and God was using that star to guide the Magi to Jesus so that all of the nations would worship him. So we're really talking about a global king here, not some tribal deity, so forth. This is someone that is ruling the entire earth. You know, at the beginning of Matthew, we have sort of this come and see type pattern. At the end of Matthew, we have a go and tell pattern, and it's called the Great Commission. So the Magi come and see, we go and tell, and the purpose is the same, to love and to worship the newborn king. Now, the fourth observation is uh, an inescapable detail in our story is that there are two groups of people that are not interested in worship. And the first group is passively opposed, and this would be the scribes and the Pharisees living in Jerusalem at the time. They knew from the Old Testament studies that the king was to be born. They knew where he was to be born, And when you consider the cosmic magnitude of this particular event, their their apathy is absolutely staggering. They just didn't bother coming from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to investigate what had taken place. Now, the second group is actively opposed, and this group was led by Herod. He was given the the title king of the Jews, and he ran the the Jewish nation like an iron fist for 40 years. Now, after consulting the religious leaders and learning that the king would be born in Bethlehem, Herod said to the Magi, listen, you go and search, and when you find the newborn king, come back and tell me so that I can come and worship him as well. Very sly maneuver because Herod had murder and not worship in, in his own heart. And his own self-encrusted self-interest and paranoia led to really the annihilation 
uh, of the innocents there in the city of Bethlehem a little later in the chapter in Matthew. So the first movement is really the journey of the Magi. And the second movement, the second major point here would be uh, the gifts of the Magi. You see, after coming into the house and they saw the child with Mary, they fell to the ground and they worshiped. And they presented him gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. The first thing they did was offer their gold. And gold was a symbol of Jesus' royalty. Gold is the metal of kings. In archaeological digs in ancient Egypt, they discovered that gold had been put into the coffin of the pharaohs. And one of the more precious finds in Greek history was the mask of Agamemnon done in pure gold. Now, some of you may recall that Agamemnon was the Greek god who demanded child sacrifice in Homer's Iliad. Now, when the Magi gave the gift of gold, what they were doing was acknowledging the kingliness of Jesus and his right to rule. Now, it's been suggested by some that the gold that the Magi presented to the newborn child was used by Mary and Joseph to escape the wrath of Herod when they took the newborn over to Egypt for a period of time. It's possible that the gold might have been used for that. But how the gold was used is totally overshadowed by the significance of the gift itself. Because Jesus was the king, the magi knew it, and so they gave him gold. Now, the second gift they gave him was incense. And incense was a symbol of Jesus' purity. Now, since incense was always used during that time in temple worship, as part of a meal offering that was given by a thankful worshiper. It was simply to acknowledge the love and the goodness of God. So it was incense that gave off the fragrant aroma. And that's what Jesus' life was to the Father. It was a fragrant aroma to the Father because Jesus did exactly the will of the Father all the way during his time on earth. Now, incense was never mixed with other sin offerings. And that uh, certainly made sense because Jesus was without sin. Not only at his birth, but also throughout his life. And it was his purity, his perfection, that allowed him to go to the cross as the unblemished lamb and pay for our sins and earn for us our salvation. So it was the incense was a gift. Now the third gift they gave him was the myrrh. And myrrh was a symbol of Jesus' death. In fact, myrrh was a spice that was used in embalming a corpse. Uh, Nicodemus, you may recall him in John chapter 3. We studied about him. I'm sure you remembered everything that I said. But anyway, Nicodemus was involved in uh, preparing Jesus to enter the tomb. And he used 100 pounds of myrrh in order to, uh, to, you know, to prepare Jesus for a placement in the tomb. Now, in Revelation... 
we read of a city uh, of Smyrna. There's a couple of chapters in, early in the book of Revelation that talk about the seven churches, and one of them was Smyrna. It was in Asia Minor, a modern-day Turkey, and myrrh was their greatest industry during that time there. Now, by any measure, it would seem a little bit odd, perhaps even offensive, to present the infant Christ a spice that was used for embalming. Now, but in this case, it was neither odd nor offensive. It happened to be a gift of faith. Now, again, we're not sure how the wise men found out, but the Old Testament foretold Jesus' suffering and death, and perhaps that's how they found out. They could have been students as well of reading the Old Testament. It had long since been published, printed out, so to speak, for people to read before the New Testament ever became part in the, you know, in the A.D. period. Psalm 22, for instance, speaks of the death of Christ on a cross. Uh, Isaiah 53 says, he, he, the Messiah, will be smitten by God, pierced for our transgressions, and, and crushed for our iniquities. So there was another use of myrrh, by the way, in the ancient world, and it was to deaden pain. Now again, in the gospel accounts, you can read in Mark chapter 15 that when Jesus was on the cross, one of the Roman soldiers came and offered him wine that was mixed with myrrh to deaden the pain of what he was feeling, and Jesus refused it. But then in John chapter 19, when the wine was unmixed with myrrh and it was offered to Jesus, he accepted it. It was kind of like Jesus choosing to bear all, the suffer, all that suffering and death could possibly bring him without natural anesthesia. So the Magi gave gold for royalty, they gave incense for purity, and myrrh for death. Those were the gifts of faith, and they were recognizing something of the work of Jesus Christ. Now listen to what Isaiah 60 says. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is upon you. Nation will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and incense, and will bear good news of the praises of our Lord. Now, when Jesus comes again, the second coming, the one that we're waiting for, a scene will be enacted very similar to the coming of the Magi to Bethlehem. Once again, gifts are going to be given to Jesus when he comes again. But when the gifts are presented, it will only be the gold and the incense. The suffering of the Lord, symbolized by the myrrh, is finished forever. It's a beautiful thing. I appreciate the words of Charles Wesley in one of his greatest hymns. Uh, His brother was an evangelist. Charles was a a writer of hymns, but I love the words of this. It says, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. 
born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. What about our application, our own life application? What about our own gifts to Jesus? Let me uh, share a couple of thoughts about that with you before we close today. Uh, In one respect, there's absolutely nothing that we can give to Jesus. God is the designated giver in our relationship with him. And he's not going to let that giver part of him be usurped by you and me. Actually, he already owns everything, including everything that we have. The rightful owner of everything is Christ. And he's already given us the gift of eternal life in Christ. You see, Jesus, or God would be analogous, if you please, to an earthly father who had a part with the mother of giving a daughter to birth. And he provided it all. And then the father provided everything that this young girl would need to live life and enjoy life and so forth. And then he would give her an allowance through which this young girl would go get him a gift. So, you know, we can give God gifts and we tithe our money so forth, but it, it has to do really with spreading the gospel God is the giver. He's the one that gives everything to you and to me. Everything you have that's good is just something of the benevolence and the generosity of the God who loves you more than you can possibly imagine. So, you know, when we talk about giving God's gifts, it's really just giving him the stuff that he's already given to us. It's kind of like spending the father's money and buying him a gift. Happens all the time to dads, right? Just happens. That's what dads do. We give our kids some money so they can go out and buy us a gift. And that's just one of the great things. And our heavenly dad makes precedence on that kind of thing. So understand, you know, uh, when we donate money uh, to to keep this church going, when we donate money to buy a building or donate money to, to refresh that building. We do it for the glory of God, but in reality, everything we give, God owns anyway. So it's just one of these weird things uh, that, uh, you know, people that hoard money just forget about that. They just, uh, anyway, enough of a rant on my own part in respect to this. God owns everything. You know, uh, but interestingly enough, we can present our gifts to God, our gifts of faith to God, and that would be gold, and that would be incense, and that would be myrrh. Now, so I'm going to personalize it a little bit from us to God. So let's look at myrrh for just a moment. And myrrh is not only a, a symbol of Christ's death. It's also a symbol of the spiritual death that should come to you and me. Uh, you know, if, if you've never laid the reality of your spiritual death at the feet of Jesus, you know, what better time than to do it during the Christmas season? It's saying, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. 
I know that I deserve to be barred from your presence forever, but you took my sin, you died in my place, and I just thank you for accepting me as your child, as your son, as your daughter. You see, when you were born, you cried, and everybody that loved you rejoiced. Now, the key for you and me is to live our lives in such a way that when we die, everyone who loves us will cry, and we will rejoice because we'll be with our eternal heavenly Father. Uh, After you've given your myrrh, come with your incense. Now, coming with your incense is simply to acknowledge that your life, my life, is impure just as the life of Jesus is not impure. We're we're simply admitting to the Lord that our greatest acts of goodness, whatever they might be, and benevolence as well, are always going to be tainted. They're always going to be mixed with imperfections just simply because we're not perfect. Uh, But remember, when we're in Christ and motivated by his glory, our imperfect lives become a fragrant aroma and it's pleasing to God. It's hard to believe sometimes we can be pleasing to God, but we are all the time when we we just look up and smile. So give God your incense. Now, after your myrrh and your incense, you come with your gold. And uh, when you come with your gold, you realize that gold is the medal of kings. And so it's really acknowledging God's right to rule your life. You know, in other words, find your ultimate delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God designed the universe in such a way uh, that every aspect of it points back to his majesty. Uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Isaiah 43, the beast of the field will honor me. You see, the rest of all of creation submits to the lordship of the king. The only rebels in the whole created order are human beings itself. Now, as people made in the image of Christ, what we do, we lock arms as an assembly with the rest of the created order in our zeal to honor God. Gold and incense and myrrh are simply gifts of faith on our part to our Lord. The only thing that we can offer to the God who has already given us everything. Now, one final thought here. When you look at the Christmas story, you have to consider who it was that welcomed Jesus into the world. It was the shepherds and the magi. Now, as far as the Jews were concerned, the wrong people were at the party. The shepherds were marginalized in Jewish society. They were unschooled nomads. They never mixed with mainstream humanity. They certainly wouldn't be candidates for your daughter's hand in marriage. The Magi, on the other hand, were smart. They were well-heeled, but they were Gentiles, and they were heterodox. 
And yet these illiterate social outcasts and these theological and ethnic outcasts, the magi from the East, all have something in common. And that is they all wind up at the same spot. The simple and the sophisticated, they come together to welcome the newborn king. And it is the gospel of grace that we have. He was promised. We were promised a redeemer. And people all the way through the Old Testament, in fact, God promised it to Adam and Eve. He let Abraham know that he was going to be the father of a, of a great nation that would ultimately produce the Messiah. And hundreds and hundreds of years passed. And then finally, God sends them. And he's born in a manger, born of a virgin, which protects his absolute purity so that he might ultimately live the life that we could not live and then die the death that we deserve to die so that he might bring us to a place like this each and every week where we worship him until ultimately we end up with him in glory itself. Would you stand in prayer? And if there's some closing music, the worship team can make their way up as well. <clears throat> Our Father, we... <clears throat> think through this Christmas season, and there's uh, so many things, uh, families getting together and friends getting together and uh, taking a little bit of time off from school and in some cases work as well, and we just enjoy the more relaxed uh, spirit and uh, uh, friendliness during that time, and then we come here and get to remember why it all takes place. It's... Uh, God's uh, redemptive pro uh, promise uh, set in motion, happening in space and time, and ultimately, Father, it's going to be cul uh, culminated when you come again to us. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we would be so overwhelmed with gratitude that we would never take anything for granted. Uh, Father, you reached down and touched our hearts and uh, we, we thank you for that incredible gift. And we pray that we can continue to learn more significantly about you and uh, through your words so that uh, in the days and weeks and months to come, we will certainly continue to worship you more. We thank you that that's your plan for us here on earth. In Christ's name, amen.